are listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Hi, I'm Will. Hi, I'm Alessandra, and this is Oliver. And we're the Thomases. The teaching text today is a paraphrase from Genesis 6 through 7 and is read from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Time passed and many people filled the earth. Everyone everywhere had forgotten about God and were only doing bad things all the time. God's heart was filled with pain when he saw what had happened to the world he loved. Now Noah was God's friend. Noah listened to God and he talked to God. He just loved being with God like you do your best friend. Noah, God said, things have gone wrong. People are filling my world with hate instead of love and destroying themselves and each other. And my world, and I must stop them. First, we'll build an ark. A storm is coming, God told Noah, but I will rescue you, I promise. I'll send the animals to you, the ones that creep and crawl and slither and slime and gallop and hop and bound and climb. So Noah built an ark. And Noah must have looked rather silly. His boat was in the desert. The desert was nowhere near the sea, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. When the ark was ready, God said, All aboard, and Noah's family and the animals all climbed inside. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, church. Oh, man. Child dedications. Get me. Every time. Um, God, can I just say... Jesus is, this is like for free. We hadn't even started the real sermon yet, so don't start the clock. Uh, Jesus is surrounded by these kids, and he tells his disciples, like, like, there is real danger and consequences on any who would bar them from coming to me. And we often think about that in the, you know, the proactive you know, like people that, that are actively keeping kids away from Jesus. But I think Jesus also means it in our apathy. That if we do not take seriously our call to pass on from generation to generation the truth that we know that Jesus is Lord and he is the safety for our souls, then we are, we are failing and shame on us. And so I just say that to say, man, may we receive earnestly and wholeheartedly the invitation to make sure that our kids know that they are not members in waiting, but they are active participants in the family of God here and now, right? And so for some of you, that's going to mean, you know, signing up for that kid's ministry. I do it. You can do it. We can come down there. If you don't know what to do, Diana's amazing. She'll teach you. But let's take seriously our call to bring the children of, the children of God to God. Amen? All right, cool. Well, speaking of childhood, um, I'm just curious, by a show of hands, who here had like a childhood pet that they just like loved and adored? Oh, wow, there's a lot of you. Uh, it, all right, can I have like two people who are brave enough? Will you just stand? Uh, just, come on, somebody, just get up. Who had a childhood pet? It's going to be so painless. Thank you. All right, so here's what I would just love to hear. Just uh, the name of your childhood pet, what your childhood pet was, and why you love them so much. Her name was Chicken. She was a French bulldog, and um, 
Boston Terrier combined. And she was the perfect combination of like sleepy, snorey, but also like could jump really high. And she was like, had so much energy sometimes. And then other times she was just like snoring and burping and stuff. Oh, um, what was that name more? Her name was Chicken. Well, that's what I called her. <laughs> I love that. Amazing. All right, somebody else, real quick. Oh, there we go, right there. Thank you. Get a gold yeah. star. Hi. Right. <laughs> um, I had a dog named Schmedley. Oh, wow. He was wow. a yellow lab. Um, and I was actually adopted when I was six, and he oh. was with the family, so he was like my little brother. <laughs> um, and he would let me put my clothes on him all the time. Oh, <laughs> that is amazing. Thank you. I am so happy to hear those stories, because that was not my experience. <laughs> uh, uh, my family and I, we had, um, we had a cocker spaniel named Fagin. I, I don't even know. Uh, but, but Fagin hated me. Um, and honestly, I wasn't that fond of her. And, uh, and so she would, she would like growl at me. She would scratch my door at night and wake me up. She would go, this is, this is, I'm being dead serious. She would go into my closet and I was a teenager and there'd be like clothes obviously all over the floor. And she would find one like tucked away in the back and she would leave me a not so nice present within that t-shirt and she'd like cover it up. And so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And so we were really at odds. And as a teenager, this really stressed me out. I did not like her. I'll be very honest. There were days where I thought, like, I'm going to, like, just give her some dirty water. Um, but then this was also, like, the rise of CSI. So I felt she might get sick. And then, like, there would be an autopsy and, like, I would go to jail. And so <laughs> I was too scared to do that. And so we were just at constant war. And she lived a very long life. <laughs> Some would say too long, uh, but we were just at odds. And it's so weird because that's actually not how it was supposed to be when you think about it. We're in this series, right, uh, contending with death, and we're going through the Genesis, Genesis narratives and the stories that we find in the first scripture and to, to unpack really what it means to wrestle with death and sin that has entered the world. And when it comes to, you know, talking about this wrestling with sin and death, oftentimes we focus on inner, inner turmoil. We focus on strife between people. But today, as we get into the text, we're going to be talking about the enmity that exists, the contending with death that happens in the relationship between us and creation. It's not often something that we talk about. I was telling someone this week, yeah, I'm teaching on recycling. Um, but I think it is actually a very necessary thing. Thomas Aquinas says that when we err with creation, we err with God. And so we're going to dive into the text today to understand as we look at the story of Noah and this flood, what does it look like? What is it meant for us to contend with death and our relationship with creation? See, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the first, the, the beginning, the, the Garden of Eden, uh, what the scriptures say as God described it, the Tov Meod, that everything was just really good, that everything was in perfect relationship. Man was in perfect relationship with itself, with uh, man and woman, with God, and with creation. And in this place, in this relationship with creation, we find what our relationship was supposed to look like. 
Namely, the first part of that, what we were made, was to occupy the land. See, our relationship with creation is rooted in what we were made to do. We were not made for enmity, but instead of war, we were made for rest. Last week, Ryan talked about Adam, or Cain and Abel, and how there was this descendant of Cain as sin moved from uh, individual, from families to societies. And, and this, this ancestor of Cain, his great-great-grandson Lamech, was this evil man who boasted about how he paid vengeance on the world. Well, there's also a second Lamech in Genesis, and this one we uh, find in Genesis 5, and he is not a descendant of Cain. He is rather a descendant of Seth. Uh, Adam and Eve go on to have a third child after Abel is slain, and in the lineage of this third child, Seth, we see this uh, new Lamech, uh, different like the other Lamech, and that he comes from a lineage of those who hold fast uh, to Yahweh, who, who are in relationship, uh, want to be in relationship with Creator. And so Lamech, Lamech in Genesis 5, he has a son, and he names his son Noah. Now, Noah, that word there means rest. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's his desire then, it says in verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years, he had a son, and he named him Noah, and he said, he will comfort us and the labor and painful toil of our hand caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And so he has this like quick prayer that says, I'm having this son and I'm calling him rest because I hope that I can retire because I'm tired. It is the same prayers that I pray over my son, that one day he will be smart and I will be retired and he will pay my bills, you know? <laughs> and so Lamech names his son rest, I like that. And this, to catalyze, he's saying, this is what we were made to be. Gosh, may we rest in the Lord. We were called to occupy the land, to be in a good relationship with it. Genesis 1.28, God said to this as he created the first people. He said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So as our relationship of occupying the land, we were called to care and cultivate. When we think about this word subdue, oftentimes we use it in its negative tense, that I bind you up, that I oppress you, that I subjugate you, I lord over you. But this is not the, the intended tense of this word. When we're talking about subduing here as Jesus, as God is calling the first people, what he's calling them to do is to cultivate order. He's calling them to set uh, systems into place to, to cultivate the land, to, to tame the gardens as a good shepherd sets up boundaries for the tomatoes to grow. He's trying to create order. This is actually to mimic what he does in Genesis 1 and 2. In the very first things in the second verse of the scriptures, it says that the, 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 the waters were void. There was this void in the earth, right? The void was deep. And the spirit of the Lord hovered over this void, right? And so this void, it's this, it's this picture of chaos and brokenness. And yet the spirit comes and speaks a word and then life comes, order comes, the seas come and they have a border on the land. The stars come into the sky, the, the moon and the sun take their place. This is what God is doing. He is setting order over chaos and then likewise, he has called his people as they occupy his good land to create it and cultivate order. 
We see this again in Noah. There's this thing about the Bible is that it's like this fractal. Like the more and more you go down, the deeper you go down, the more and more it repeats itself. God is showing man how he should live. And then he, he puts it in all the smallest nooks and crannies of the universe. This is what I'm calling you to do. And so we start with a God who creates order to a chaotic void. And then we have people who are called to just bring order to a land that's teeming with life, good but wild. And then we have Noah, this man, in the middle of a chaotic world. The scriptures start out that when we come uh, in, into the story of Noah, that the world has been uh, corrupted by evil. So much so that the Lord is, is discomforted. He's sad. Uh, some, some scriptures say regret, regret the world, or he regret that he made the world, regret that he made man. And I just want to give you a little context for that. Actually, with that word there, Nahum, it's, 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 a, it's the word for sighing. It's the word for that deep breath you give when you're just like, the Lord is just discomforted. And he's grieved by the state of the world. Why, we're going to get into in a second. But look at what God calls Noah, this man, to do in the midst of a disordered world. He calls him in chapter 6 to make an ark. God has decided that he cannot stand disorder. And so that he is going to restart. He is going to wipe clean creation. But he saves a remnant. And so he takes this man, Noah, and he says, make yourself an ark a cypress wood, and then he tells him how to space it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it. Leave below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. This was like the first uh, DIY project. <laughs> and so Noah sets off to create this ark. And this ark is going to be this, this ordered vessel over a chaotic sea. Just like we hearken back again to verse 2, over this void, over this, these, teen, these chaotic waters, the spirit hovers. And so we have Noah. Noah, in a way, is revealing God's character. And this is the second call of our, of our occupation of the world. We are called to reveal our relationship with creation displays who we were made to be. As we occupied, we showed what we were made to do. We were made to, to, to uh, bring order to chaos. But then in our revelation, we realized that we were called uh, to be a mimic of our creator. We were called to be a faithful people. Genesis 6.22, after God gives Noah this list of instructions, it says this, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. This is why Noah was fit for such a task. As we said, we open, verse, we open chapter 6, Lord is grieved by the state of the world, but why exactly is he grieved? Well, we don't know much, and actually in some stories, maybe you've seen some video, uh, there's uh, this scene in like, that movie about Noah that was made with Russell Crowe where the people are like mocking Noah, you know, and there's, you might have heard that story before. You may be tempted to believe that the scriptures talk about people mocking Noah as he built an ark, but people actually aren't mentioned in that text. Like we don't know what the state of the world is like in Genesis, but we get this peak actually in Matthew when Jesus is talking. 
And he says this, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. Well, that sounds weird. I mean, people were just like hanging out, getting married. Like, Lord, why are you upset about that? Well, listen to what it says in verse 6, 5 of Genesis. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. We said in our first week as we described evil, that evil is the breaking of relationships, right? And so what we see here in these two texts is that really these people, yes, maybe there was murder we know from Lamech and uh, the descendants of Cain, but more than that, there was just a general disregard for God. Maybe you've experienced this. I would honestly rather you just actively hate me than to just not even think about me. Like that seems a greater insult, that you're just like, I can't even be bothered. I really couldn't care less. And so in the face of a creator that called them into relationship, man has done away with him. We really honestly don't need you. And they have set out then to live distinct from him, to carry out on their own ways. And this grieves the heart of God who made them for relationship. Every inclination of their thoughts was only evil, was only the breaking of relationship. I really don't need you. So God calls a faithful person, one who does want him, one who did desire to be in relationship with him, one who would do as he commanded. Because as a faithful people, we are also then called to be a picture of our creator. This is why God wants good relationship, because he is trying to reveal himself. He is showing himself in and through us. This is what we see when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus when he says in verse 10 of chapter 2, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this word workmanship, it's the Greek is poema. It's, it's, this, it's this term for a masterpiece, a work of art. We were made, as Genesis told us, in his image. God says, let us make man in our image. So we are made just to reflect, but not just that. That is not just alone why we are his poema, but it's because we have been made for these good works. We not just reflect God in our nature, but in our activity, we show what he is like. And these works, these things that he has called us to, he has laid out for us. We work in relationship with him. This is what we were made to do. And in our relationship with the land, as we care for it and as we cultivate it, we then again show creation God. We mimic our creator. Noah does this, we again see when we go back into the text. Uh, just take a look at this. Genesis uh, 6, 19, God gives Noah some further instructions. He says, you are to bring in the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Later, he expands that a little bit more in chapter 7. He says, take with you seven pairs of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal. And he tells them that we have to keep, this will keep them alive, so they have to come unto the ark. But then catch what happens, because uh, I couldn't imagine trying to find all these animals 
and like get them onto a boat. But look in verse seven, chapter uh, seven, verses eight through nine. It says this: pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God has commanded Noah. Noah gives. God gives Noah this commandment to go and gather the animals, and then that work is fulfilled through God's activity. The animals come to him, and he simply guides them into the place that he has made for them. And so our work is not in the generative. We don't have to take on the pressure of taming this world, though we try. We are not gods. We are not equal to God. But we are called to participate in the work of God, to reveal his character and nature and how we steward creation. And he does it. This is what Paul is saying. We do the good works that he has set out before since the very beginning. This is why Paul also writes to the church at Philippi. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We get to show up and share in his glory. And he does all the heavy lifting. It's a God I can get behind. So as we were called to occupy, and as we were called to reveal the nature of God, the reality is that we did none of those things. And because of that, there's this enmity. And so, Creation then condemns us. See, our, our relationship with creation exposes what we've settled for. I've uh, cried a lot of private tears as I've just read the news and uh, looked at the pictures coming out of Ukraine and these people um, displaced. And, you know, my wife and I, we, we have this new home and we're, we're moving into it. And we're decorating it and, and we're nesting and we've, we've got our son and soon his first birthday party in this space is going to happen. And there's going to be all these memories that are unveiling. And I think about all those people in the homes that they just put up new pictures where they just held birthday parties. And now that home is ruined. And for what and for why? for the will of despots, greedy, small men. That people who had no seats of power, who've never done anything to necessarily cause the chaos that they're finding, are being thrust into the darkness, traveling hundreds of miles, trying to find a place that's safe. And as I was preparing this sermon I thought about the first refugees, the first collaterals of war. So just as now in our day now, we are witnessing uh, people trying to live free and, and the, the pursuit of evil pushing in to invade. We go back to these first, this first order of things and God is trying to, to live and to create a free people, and yet evil is pushing in and breaking down, and there's this collateral to this war, and it's in these animals. 
It's very easy to read the story of Noah and just focus on the people. We have this, uh, it's like bamboo, these trees right behind our house. And there's all these nests. And right now the birds are just singing and they're all just like laying eggs in these nests that they've built. And there are these little families in waiting. And I think about those little nests that were made before the floodwater started that would be washed away. And the animals that had to travel to get on a boat. And we know that animals have much more capacity than we give them. They feel and they see, they bring us comfort, we bring them comfort. I had a terrible childhood pet, but I had friends who had great childhood pets. Obviously, a lot of you know this. And so I think about these first refugees of this war of which they took no part. This war of evil versus good and of man's uh, destruction, man's courting of evil and how it is spilled over. Not just into our relationship between God, not just between ourselves, but onto creation itself. It has displaced the world around us. And so these animals are on a boat and their homes are gone. Their animal friends are gone. And I think the Lord grieves that. And I think we should too. And it makes me think about my relationship to the earth and the world around us, creation itself. Uh, I must confess, oftentimes I, uh, I try to preach as one who testifies. I try to teach from things that I know or have experienced or witnessed in others. And I try to preach and I try to teach and I try to lead from scars and not wounds. But today, I'm, in, I'm as much in the front seat as I am up here. Because I've been thinking this week about how I am contending with death with the things that I buy and the things that I waste and the way that I order my life and how I participate in individual and systemic abuse of creation. It is a very real thing that grieves the heart of God. Because while we were his workmanship, he called all of creation good. He loved every piece of it. The birds, the seas, the coral. And if I'm honest, oftentimes, most times, I live in a way that shows complete and utter apathy for that. Now, this is not a call to piety and shame. I know we live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I know you probably spend way too much time in the organic section trying to figure out, like, how fair is this trade? And like, (laughs) did this chicken have a name? And like, should I eat this? I'm not trying to lengthen your stay at the grocery market. There's this this moment in the Gospels where um, this woman is pouring She's pouring out oil, this expensive oil on Jesus' feet. Uh, We kind of sung about it earlier this morning. And she's pouring out her affection and her devotion on the feet of Jesus. And and the disciples come and they go, whoa, 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 why would you do that? That's expensive. We could have sold that and given it to the poor. 
And Jesus tells the disciples, the poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me. Now, is Jesus not inclined to the heart of the poor? No. What he's pointing at is that he wanted them not to be about piety. But he wanted them to recognize that the, the real thought was how do we hold and embrace that which is holy? And so the question before you is not like how, how much you have to like live to be right, but it's like, man, what are the ways in which I can wholly embrace creation? Wendell Berry uh, is a poet, essayist, novelist, farmer. I, I think one of the premier theologians of our time. Uh, he's this old Kentucky man. Uh, and he, he wrote this uh, that has just been haunting me. Um, but he says, properly speaking, global thinking is not possible. Look at one of the photographs of half the earth taken from outer space and see if you recognize your neighborhood. The right local questions and answers will be the right global one. The Amish question, what will this do to our community, tends towards the right answer for the world. Basically, he's saying, you will get lost trying to find global solutions. But if you seek to do right by what's in front of you, it will work its way up. It's the opposite of the trickle down. Worshipee, you can come on back up. We're about to wrap up here, but. He also has this other quote. Wendell says, our destruction of nature is not just bad stewardship or stupid economics or betrayal of family responsibility. It is the most horrid blasphemy. It is flinging God's gifts into his face as if they were of no worth beyond that assigned to them by our destruction of them. That when we live in such a way that pillages and plunders the earth, when we live in apathy to God's desire and heart for creation, we deny what he has called very good. We just call it useful. Useful to make me happy. but we are called to so much more. In Isaiah, he gives this prophecy for the people of God. And he says this, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. How apropos for our time, how we long for this time. I just want to call your attention to this. They will beat their swords into plowshares. I researched this this week, so, okay. But this is what I learned, and it just opened the scripture for me. So I was like, what is a plowshare? Do you know what a plowshare is? All right, so there's this picture. Okay, this is a plow, right? So uh, down here at the bottom, uh, this is a plowshare, this like 
Uh, yeah, that thing right down there. Uh, it's this blade. And, and what it does is the plowshare goes into the ground and it, and it creates the trench by which we can place seeds. And those seeds then become, they become the start of life, right? But right in front of the plowshare, if you'll notice, there's a circular thing. This is called a coulter. And what a coulter is, a coulter is a blade that breaks up the dirt. It breaks up any trash, anything that's in the way. It leads the way for the plowshare to do its work. You can get by without a coulter, but you will find the work to be very tedious and not very clean. It's really kind of disastrous. But if you have this coulter cutting in front of the plowshare, right, moving and leading the way for it, well, then the plow gets to flow smoothly. And so when I think about this picture of the holy mountain of God and us as a people beating our, our swords in the plowshares and we move behind the culture of the Lord, that he is breaking through evil and giving us an opportunity to come behind him and to plow and to sow seeds that life may spring forth. Gosh, what does it look like for us to occupy the world, to bring it into order? for us to reveal the very nature of God and how we treat the world of God. This is what he's called us. And so we'll end just as Isaiah ends in this oracle. He says in verse five, come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And I say that to us, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Would you stand with me? We're gonna move into a time of response. I just wanna explain what this is gonna look like. First, if you're new here, we have these rugs here. Uh, There's nothing magical about them. Uh, we didn't get them from Agrabah. But what they do is they just create a space for you to just meet with the Lord and do with your bodies what your heart is doing. And so this is a place where you can come and kneel, you can lay flat, you can do whatever you need to do. Sometimes it is good. This faith is a holistic one. And so we need to move our bodies, get out of those chairs and respond to the Lord. And then we're gonna have people up here who are just gonna be here to pray for you. And those are people who are just here to hold space, to listen to your heart. And they'll move across the crowd. So they'll come. You don't have to come to them necessarily, but I, I would encourage you to move to avail yourself of prayer. And then we're gonna worship. We're gonna sing and we're gonna lift our voices to the Lord. Because there's something good when we give voices to the things that are happening. But all of this response is gonna come through here, the table, communion. See, in our enmity with, relation, with creation, with ourselves and with God, we needed a culture. We needed something to plow the way, to break up the trash, to create a path by which we could do our activity. And this is what Jesus does. He came to show us how to live. And he embodied that by dying, the ultimate of self-sacrifice. 
so Jesus, as he was sitting with his disciples, he, he took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. So whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's cup. We reveal the glory of God when we get behind the one who broke through everything for us. And so if you identify in the family of God, I want to invite you to come and receive communion. Come, pray, come worship. Let us walk in the way of the Lord. Lord, we thank you that by you we may live. May we hold the good gift of creation with the esteem with which you made it. This is our prayer. The gifts of God for the people of God. Come and respond.